It's the last show of the season, and we're going out with a bang. It's a mega podcast with two expert guests, million-dollar fantasy winner Dave Potts and baseball writer Joe Sheehan, plus all the regular great stuff, and it's all coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time. And it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Learn to play the winner's way. Because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 29th. Show number 57 and the last show of the 2014 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you. As I said in the teaser, in just a few minutes we'll have two guest experts. Dave Potts won a million bucks in a one-night daily fantasy tournament, and we'll ask him what that's like and how he did it. Plus, we'll have one of our favorite returning guests, baseball writer Joe Sheehan, from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated, discussing the best team in baseball, teams that give away outs, what framing really says about the strike zone, studs and duds, and more. And for the last time this season, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. In our Metric Minute, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at first pitch strike percentage for pitchers, in our regular matchups analysis, analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Cubs lefty Tsuyoshi Wada in St. Louis to face righty Justin Masterson and more. And in Master Notes, Baseball HQ founder Ron Chandler talks about keeping your owners playing hard to the end. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? One last time, we gotta talk some baseball. And in our first inning, as always, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, the last show of the season. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. And uh, let's start with uh, Stephen Nickrand, as we often do, our starting pitcher buyer's guide columnist. He looked at uh, big skill swings after the All-Star break, and the first name on his National League list was Miami right-hander Henderson Alvarez, who still has an ERA under three. Yeah, Henderson Alvarez is kind of an interesting case because his, his ERA prior to the All-Star break was 2.32, an outstanding ERA in the first half, but the skills didn't quite support it. Skills, 86 BPV, so sort of uh, okay-ish, but, but not great. But what we're seeing since the All-Star break is... A, uh, a Dom is actually down just a little bit, but so is his control. He's walking fewer guys. His uh, ground ball rate is up. His skills are looking better since the All-Star break and are really starting to support that ERA, a 3.54 ERA since the All-Star break, and that's exactly what his XERA has said all year. So uh, that's about what we're seeing right now out of Henderson Alvarez. It looks like a pretty good target, I think, for next year in keeper leagues. Um with, with skills that seem to be pretty solid and maybe improving just a bit, as they should be at age 24. 
That's the thing, just 24 years old, and his entire career in the major league so far has been marked by extremely high ground ball rates, yeah, well over 50% most years, uh, 57% in 2012, 56% this year. That's a really excellent ground ball percentage, and if you put him in front of a team that has uh, a decent record at turning ground balls into outs, as Miami does, then this is a guy, a type of pitcher, I should say, who has a chance to outpitch his expected ERA because of that tremendous ground ball tilt and a, and a concomitant uh, fly ball, very few fly balls given up as well. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, here's a guy that uh, he's not gonna, he doesn't have a huge dom rate, not going to strike out eight or nine guys per nine innings, but with a ground ball rate as he has, he'll get by with a dom of, of uh, 5.5, 5.3, and be able to perform very, very well. Oddly enough, despite his uh, 25% fly ball rates each of the last four years, in 2011 and 2012, he actually gave up 1.1 and 1.4, respectively, home runs per nine innings, which is very unusual because of a uh, greatly inflated home run per fly ball rate. Last year, it was down to 3%, which is a little bit odd the other way, and he fell all the way down to only 2, uh, 0.2 home runs per nine innings. This year, his home run per fly ball rate has normalized to 10%, which means his home run per nine will be 0.7, and that means... He's going to strand a lot of runners, the ones he does give up. And as you said, he doesn't give up many by the walk. No, he doesn't. He's not. He's walking less than two guys per nine innings, and, and that's always a good thing. And over the last 31 days, I'd just like to say his base performance value, 95, and his last two starts, 130. So the, the thing I like about Henderson Alvarez, especially in redraft leagues or in leagues where um, you're going to have a shot at Henderson Alvarez next year, is that a lot of fantasy owners don't like a guy who has such a low strikeout rate, and it could mean a buying opportunity, a bargain. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, you're you're right. A lot of guys uh, kind of kind of discount a strikeout rate below six, which is what you're going to have with Henderson Alvarez, I think, most of the time, and and so there is a cert- certainly a bargain there. Stephen Nickrand's column also noted Arizona right-hander Josh Callmenter because he has increased his dominance more than any pitcher in the big leagues in the second half. He's up to eight point one strikeouts per nine. Yeah, Josh Colmitter's dom has gone has gone way up, and you know, but here's a guy you got to be kind of careful with with Josh Colmitter. That that increase in dom is is outstanding, and put that with a with a 1.6 control, uh, and everything looks very good. He's really getting kind of elite sort of sort of skills showing in the second half. But the thing you the thing with Josh Colmitter, there's always I think going to be a little bit of inconsistency there because here's a guy that has kind of a fly ball tilt, and so and doesn't throw all that hard. I mean his his uh, a mid-80s fastball. Uh, so on a consistency level, Josh Colmitter won't always do quite as well as, as perhaps you want him to. But you've got to like that increased uh, that increased dom rate, especially here was a guy 28 years old, so kind of just coming into his prime as a pitcher. Uh, and uh, could uh, there could be sort of a breakout, I think, on the horizon for Josh Colmitter. And one big thing about Colmenter that I noticed when I looked at his record uh, in 2012-2013, albeit in somewhat limited innings, Nick, uh, less than 100 innings both years in the big leagues, uh, his dominance rate was 8.0 strikeouts per nine and then 8.3. So this is not something new that we're seeing in the second half of 2014, but maybe a, a return to past glories. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, this is, this is, not, uh, this is something he's been able to show before. Uh, and at this point in the second half, his results are not showing what the skills were. 48 BPV in the first half and a 3.74 ERA. 106 BPV so far in the second half, but a 4.66 ERA. So 
He's given up a few too many home runs in the second half because of that fly ball tilt. Um, ERA, therefore, is a little bit inflated. But uh, here's a guy who's, who's really pitching better than his results are showing at the moment. I do like that control rate. Uh, very low control rate means probably going to help you in whip. And, and the question is, how worried are you that you've got a relatively soft-tossing, fly-ball-prone pitcher in Arizona? Yeah, well, that could always be a problem uh, the, with, that, uh, uh, with that home ballpark, very, very definitely. Well, you mentioned that both of those players, pretty good bets for uh, keeping an eye on for 2015 in keeper leagues, if you can get a hold of them now. Doug Dennis had uh, something in his bullpens column that was right on that point. He was looking for skill sets among relievers for 2015. One of the names he came up with is a relief pitcher we've already discussed here on Baseball HQ Radio, Nick, right-hander Ken Giles of the Phillies. Yeah, now's the time to tuck Ken Giles away if you haven't done it already. He's not getting a whole lot of attention out there, but... Skill set, 189 BPV for the year. Uh, gigantic skill set from this guy. A, we're looking at a 12.8 strikeouts per nine for the year, a 2.4 control rate. I mean, wow. 2.23 expected earn run average. Uh, and producing a 1.34 ERA at this point. If the Phillies decide to trade John Papelbon, which they could, Giles is certainly the, uh, the closer on the horizon in Philadelphia. And uh, certainly someone that... Even even if he's not closing, uh, has a chance to do to do some good things in terms of strikeouts uh, on your roster. So the kind of guy you might just want to tuck away if you can get him at a low price. Yeah, and depending, especially in a National League only format, Nick, uh, I think it's interesting to grab guys like this because even if he's not going to be the closer at all next year, he's still going to ring up some pretty impressive numbers, including probably 65 70 strikeouts at that 12 strikeout per nine rate maybe more if he if he were to get 70 innings shall we say that'd be about an 85 strikeout campaign he could get more strikeouts next year in relief than for example henderson alvarez gets as a starter yeah very definitely and here's a guy you can probably pick up for a buck or two you know without without worrying about it and so certainly the kind of guy you want to look at at this point whip below one 0.95 for the year that's really something, and I just want to point out that anybody who was at the 2013 First Pitch Arizona got to see Ken Giles at the Arizona Fall League throwing 100-mile-an-hour fastballs, got a, a, an early drop on the competition as far as identifying those guys who could really help. And uh, if you want to check out the First Pitch Arizona page at BaseballHQ.com, it's a load of fun, boy, I'll tell you what, and you do get to see these young guys before anybody else. Uh, as I said, Ken Giles, Nick, is a name we've talked about before, but a, a name that won't be so familiar from Doug Dennis's 12 Elite Skill Sets for 2015 column, a right-hander Kevin Quackenbush of San Diego, and one reason his name came up is that he got the save opportunity the other night rather than Dale Thayer when Joaquin Benoit was not available. Yeah, and unfortunately he kind of blew that save opportunity the other night. So, But, but Kevin Quackenbush at this point looks like he could be the closer in waiting in San Diego. His, his BPV has been okay. I mean, this is not at this point a uh, uh, one of the top skill sets in the National League, but a 97 BPV for the year, doing well with strikeouts, 8.9 DOM, decent control. Uh, so here's a guy that uh, that they've already shown some uh, some faith in, and certainly at the moment has that kind of closer and waiting tag in San Diego. Uh, so certainly if you could pick him up at this point, which he, he may be easily available, uh, in plenty of leagues, some someone to look ahead to for uh, 2015. Yeah, when you look at it, I mean, I like the uh, the fact that he's got the 8.9 dominance, 8.9 strikeouts per nine is pretty good, but um, 
Walk rate is not great for a reliever at 3.0. That's going to be a, a question mark, although he's managed to keep the hits down to the extent that his whip for the season in uh, in 42 innings is also under 1.0. That's pretty good. And an ERA of 276. Again, I don't think this is the kind of guy who's rosterable in a mixed league because there are just so many other options closer to the closer role than this. But in a single league format, this again is just like uh, just like Ken Giles is going to be a guy you want to keep on your radar, if not on your reserve list, because he's the kind of guy who's who stands to help you across the board, except in saves in a single league format where you need a couple of those cheap relievers. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, especially if you if you're in a deep a deep NL only league, certainly a guy to to keep on your radar and maybe even to to tuck away at this point for 2015. All right, Nick, thanks very much for doing this. Uh, before I let you go, I'm going to put you on the spot. Who's going to be in the World Series? Oh, my gosh. Hard to tell at this point, isn't it? It's, 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 a, nice, it's a nice race. You know, you know who I'd like to see in the World Series? I'd like to see Kansas City make it back to the World Series. Wouldn't that be fun? They've done better than anybody's expected at this point in the, in the season, and maybe they can just put it all together. Yeah, that that would be interesting. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen. I still like uh, I still like the A's if they can get their pitching sorted out because they they do look good out there in the National League. Talking to Joe Sheehan in a few minutes on this show about the Washington Nationals, very quietly and without much fanfare, have become the best team in all of baseball, and they just seem to have everything going for them. They sure do. Washington really does have it going for them at this point, and that would be another real nice surprise in the World Series. So yeah. Washington's uh, uh, certainly one to look for out of the National League, and I, I, I fear in the uh, in the American League we'll get the same the same old standbys. But uh, uh, it, it would be nice to see somebody like Kansas City sneak in there, or even Seattle. Seattle could scare some people with that pitching staff as well. Although their offense is a little uh, a little uh, anemic at times, shall we say? Yeah, I guess we would find out with Seattle why their pitching really does rule the day. But uh, certainly with the pitching staff they've got, uh, there's a chance that they could. Uh, they could continue doing well and, and sneak in. And you have to like their chances in the one-game play-in because they can start Felix Hernandez, and that right away is a, is a huge advantage, assuming that they set up their rotation correctly, and I'm sure they will if they realize they're going to have that opportunity. Of course, if it's a situation on the last Sunday of the year where they have to win just to get into that game, then that's the game they have to start Felix Hernandez in, and then I guess they go with Iwakuma. Yeah, probably so, although they've got Paxton at this point who's back in the rotation and pitching very, very well, so... They've got a top three that I think rivals almost anyone in baseball at this point. And during the playoffs, it has been shown that all you need is three starters because of the off days and stuff. They don't actually test your rotation nearly as much as they do during the regular season. No, that's true. You know, and the thing, the thing to think about too with that is, you, as you think about it, you're right about the Seattle not having having much much offense. But if the other team scores zero runs. All you need is one. And, you know, they've got enough offense if it ever just comes around all at once that they could score, you know, three, four runs a game in a short run few series, and that, and that could be enough. Nick, thanks a million for doing this show, and especially for all your hard work during the season. Uh, you and Jock Thompson have done so much work that people don't see. All they hear is the, the smooth and dulcet tones, but there's a lot of work going on behind it, and I really do appreciate that you, uh, that you put in that effort. Well, thank you, Patrick. Much appreciated. It's been, it's been fun. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Last time. I know. How you doing? Time flies, doesn't it, PD? 
Yeah, it seems like only yesterday we were just uh, wrapping up the preseason and uh, trying to figure out who we were going to draft and make recommendations that way. And now here we are at the end of the run. It's been terrific. Uh, our last show of the season, of course, Labor Day is coming up and then the stretch run for Major League Baseball and for fantasy owners. So let's look at some names that might help for that September stretch run. And maybe, you know, we should keep keep in mind that a lot of owners out there looking for keeper help as well. How about Dustin Ackley in Seattle? The whole team's been doing well, and he's been incredible. You looked at him in playing time tomorrow, and Greg Pyron's batting buyer's guide also looked at uh, Dustin Ackley. You guys kind of came up with some different conclusions. Explain, please. Well, you know, Ackley's really interesting. If you look at his first half, you wouldn't want him anywhere near your team. Um... In playing time tomorrow, obviously the objective with the column is to to, to uh, project what will happen in the future, sometimes immediate, sometimes a little longer. And in Ackley's case, he's been so productive recently that he could go over next week and still not lose his job. Um, part of that is simply because of the the, uh, the Seattle outfield uh, at the corners. They're just not very good, and, and like I said, he's been red hot. But if we're just talking about Ackley's skills, I think the thing that Greg and I agree on is – He's probably better than he's been in the past and could maintain some of this, but he's really not as good as he's shown in the second half. And the reason I think both of us think that is that his skills have been volatile even in July and August. Uh, in uh, in July, his uh, he had a, a 365 batting average that was basically fueled by a 43% hit rate. And he wasn't hitting with that much power. Now he's hitting home runs in August, but his batting average is down to 266. So we're seeing a lot of volatility in the skill set there still. 266 for a batting average in this era of baseball isn't horrendous, though. And if he's going to poke a few home runs... Uh, and the other thing about Dustin Ackley that Pyron pointed out at Baseball HQ in the Batting Buyer's Guide is that, yeah, he's got the 43% hit rate for this part of the season, but he only had a 25% hit rate earlier on. And when you balance everything out, it comes out about where it ought to. Is there a, is there a chance that Dustin Ackley has just finally figured things out? And uh, how do you like him for 2015 as well? Well, again, I think he's better than he's been in the past, which isn't hard to do. He was, he's been pretty miserable, uh, um, over his career last year, he hit 250. In 2013, he hit uh, 253. I, you know, again, I think I think the thing I'm seeing here is volatility. For example, in June, he hit 165. In July, he hit 365. In August, he's hitting 266. There's a lot of volatility there. There's a lot of volatility in the underlying skill set. I think he's capable of hitting 270, 280 with double-digit home runs, double-digit steals. I don't think he's a 313 hitter as the as his second half has shown. I think that's right, but I don't think he has to be to to be of some value and then you can kind of hope that uh, next year when draft rolls around Ackley's one of those guys that a lot of your f- competing owners are going to look at and go, ah, "I don't know, you know, just one of those one of those guys." But he does have that double digit upside in both homers and bags, and if he hits 270, I think that's probably worth getting uh the oakland a's in a pennant race with your angels jock and uh they got a little bit of bad news sean doolittle goes on to the dl with an oblique strain and something of a surprise here that manager bob melvin uh, announced that eric o'flaherty is going to be the closer rather than luke gregerson rod truesdell covered this in playing time today what did he see here and what do you see here and is there any chance for gregerson well, I I think both what Rod and I and I think everyone thought was that Gregerson would get the job simply because he's been experienced at closing and, and Melvin surprised everyone announcing O'Flaherty. 
I think it's a crapshoot for the rest of September. Um, Oakland's initial thought is to keep their longtime setup relievers in their established roles, which means Gregerson and uh, Ryan Cook are, are going to set up. And O'Flaherty's actually been pretty solid since his second half return from the DL and an elbow strain. He's uh, He's got a 176 ERA, 331 uh, expected ERA, 56% ground ball rate, and a 3.0 command. So um, um, he's no slouch. The problem that the A's have right now is that uh, their bullpen, ever since ever since Doolittle's left, it's been very iffy in terms of uh, holding leads in close games. Um, they lost one last night to the Angels. They didn't have a lead, but uh, Cook wasn't particularly impressive um, last night. He couldn't find the plate. Um, Luke Gregerson coughed up a save to uh, to Houston. So I think right now O'Flaherty's the guy until um, Doolittle comes back. Yeah, Doolittle himself uh, told the media that he wasn't that concerned about the injury. Uh, he said it felt more like a cramp than an actual tear or anything like that, although he's not familiar with it. And uh, I guess we'll have to see how long he's out also. Uh, probably a safe bet to say most of September is they'll probably want to ease him back into pitching, especially as the playoffs approach. Uh, also speaking of Oakland Jock, Giovanni Soto was traded to the A's from from uh, Texas because they have some problems with catching with John Jaso out. Uh, Stephen Vogt has a foot injury that keeps him from catching. And uh, first of all, let's talk about Giovanni Soto. And second of all, maybe you could talk about Thomas Talese, the Texas prospect who's gets, who gets the call to go behind the plate for the uh, Rangers. Well, one of the reasons that, so- that the A's were interested in Soto is that they're having catching problems. Um, they're not very good against the running game, particularly with Stephen Vogt out with a foot injury. Uh, that well, that at least a foot injury that keeps him from catching. He's still playing in the outfield. Um, both the 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 A's other catchers, uh, John Jaso, he he's having concussion issues. Um, Derek Norris isn't a very good catch and throw guy. I think he's throwing out maybe uh, 11, 14 percent of the base runners against him. Set is a little better than that. He's always been around 25, 27 percent. He's going to see a lot of time behind the plate, particularly as Oakland's competitors in September realize that they can run on the A's. And what about Talese? Now, Talese is an interesting guy. He's, he's, he's very young. He's inexperienced. He's only 23. Right now, he doesn't have a lot of power, but he hits for very good contact, and he, and he does have some gap power. He's also got decent speed, as the, uh, the call up, our call-up report indicates. Um, this is a guy you don't want to expect too much from, but when you think about a park like Arlington and how young he is and the fact that he makes about 90% contact, um, he's interesting. Um, it, it's somebody to keep an eye on. As one of your many jobs, uh, Jock, you are also the Keeper League's columnist. It doesn't come into play that much this time of the year, but uh, now we're starting to think about it. And with a month to go, Keeper League owners, especially you know teams like mine, where I'm not going to be in contention for the, for the money spots, are looking at potential pickups towards the end of the year that they can hang on to as keepers for 2015. Harold Nichols and I already talked about Doug Dennis's most recent column. His bullpen buyer's guide looks at 12 elite skill sets to consider, mentions a, a bunch of relievers who don't have prominent roles right now but are nonetheless highly skilled and could step into something bigger. Let's talk about a couple of the names there. Well, there are two names that I really love uh, to potentially inherit closer roles next year, um, and 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 they are Dellen Batances of the Yankees and Wade Davis of Kansas City. And these are for several reasons. Uh, in in Batances' case, 
Um, Robertson, the free agent closer for the Yankees, is going to be looking for closer dollars, and the Yankees have decent bullpen talent with which to replace him in the organization. So I, a, a lot of people think Patance is going to get the closer, closer role. Um, no sense in rehashing his skills here. He's been dynamite. Uh, he's been one of the best non-closer relievers in the game in 2014. Davis has a guaranteed contract that actually expires with Kansas City after this season, but he has three club options through 2017 for closer-type money, between 7 and $10 million uh, escalating as the years go on. With closer Greg Holland entering his arbitration years and certainly expected to earn as much, if not more, than Davis, it seems to me that Kansas City could trade one of these names. And whoever takes them, because they're going to be earning decent money, they're probably going to close wherever they go. Now, I also like Brad Boxberger, but I think Tampa Bay is going to keep him. Um, both he and closer Jake McGee are uh, cost-effective and controlled for a few years. But um, Batances and Wade Davis are my guys. I'm curious that you think the Yankees wouldn't ante up for David Robertson. There's certainly no shortage of money in the Yankees' wallet. Uh, why do you think that they'd be willing to let him walk? And is there somebody out there who would pay him more than the Yankees would? Well, no. I mean, that's actually a good point if the Yankees want to throw money at that. But when you look at all the other holes the Yankees have, the Yankees are, are an aging team. That's true. Um, they need to, they, they've got a decent system, um, but they need, they need to spend money on, uh, on younger talent. I think they'll go into the free agent market uh, this coming spring. They also have a, a, a pitcher named Jacob Lingram, who they drafted out of Mississippi. He was, I think, their number three draft pick. He is lighting it up in double A right now, or in triple A now. He's striking out over a batter and inning. Um, they're going to bring him up in September. I think the Yankees are pretty well positioned in the bullpen to, that they don't necessarily need to pay uh, David Robertson uh, closer dollars. Dellen Batances, you didn't want to mention it, so I will. 13.4 strikeouts per nine. That's just outstanding. His whip is under 0.76, which is fantastic. And his ERA is 150. So Dellen Batances, it certainly appears, can get the job done, I guess, depending on that whole guile thing and whether we believe that he can uh, step up and not be bothered by taking the closer role. Going to be interesting there. Uh, what about in Tampa? And uh, they've got Jake McGee down there. Do you think he's the front runner for next year, or what are they going to do? Well, McGee is a lefty who doesn't show any splits uh, versus righties. I mean, he's been terrific this year. Occasionally, when he's overworked, um, Joe Madden has let Brad Boxberger close games. Brax Boxberger's a righty. You could see them going with some sort of a committee. And again, like I mentioned, both of them are under club control. They're cost-effective. Uh, unlike the Davis Holland situation, they don't cost a lot of money, and Tampa Bay has always been one of those um, um, team teams that watches their budget very carefully. I think both of them are going to stay in Tampa Bay, and both maybe get in the line for saves. Yeah, I think so. But uh, if you're going to if you're going to bet on the guy who's going to save thirty plus games, you got to go with McGee right now. Finally, Jock, I'd like to circle back to talk about one of your August picks to click. You talked about Jordan Schaefer, who's kind of a bust for Atlanta. They finally dealt him out, and um, it was kind of a surprise that he did so poorly for Atlanta. He moved on, and now he's uh, most lately been traded to Minnesota right at the deadline, and he's been he's been fantastic. I, I, he's got around 60 or so at-bats. He's hitting well over 300. He's getting 13% walk rate and an on-base percentage of more than 400. But listen to this, 10 stolen bases already and 60-plus at-bats. That's close to 100 steals a year prorated. That's Billy Hamilton country. Yeah, we kind of called the stolen bases in early August when I first started talking about him. Uh, his 
go look at his running game over the last couple of years. It's it's elevated to close to ninety percent, or maybe just a little little above it. Uh, that's uh, uh, stolen bases per attempt per attempt, and he's doing the same thing here. I'm I'm not sure he's been caught yet in in Minnesota. It's like you said, he's stolen ten bases. What I didn't expect was his contact rate to jump. It's eighty six percent in August. He's hitting three twenty eight. Um, he's he's played very good, and and Minnesota has to be considering him in their future plans, given that they're going to have at least a year between the time between now and when Byron Buxton arrives in uh, in center field. Now they have Aaron Hicks, and and Hicks will be up in September. Um, Schaefer may lose a few at bats to Hicks, but Hicks hasn't exactly set the world on fire either at Double uh, A uh, AA or Triple A where he is now, and he's failed in two major league auditions so far. So I think I think Minnesota is going to keep seeing what they have in Schaefer. One caught stealing so far for the Twins: uh, nine walks, nine strikeouts. Something you always like to see, and of course, it's a very small sample size, and we want to caution people in that regard. But he's a plus defender, and how do they? And that helps, I was going to say. And now, what are they going to do as they look down the road and they've got a fair number of decent outfielders in their minor league system? Well, again, I think center, center field is still a question for them for the next year. They've got plenty of corner outfielders and plenty of DHs and, and first basemen. Um, but center field is, 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 there's an opening there. Danny Santana is considered the shortstop of the future over there in Minnesota. You've got Byron Buxton, who's a year away. Potentially, you've got Aaron Hicks. Um, I think Schaefer is with the right team at the right time. He's got a very small window. He's going to have to take advantage of it. But again, this is a guy who's always had good patience. Uh, his contact rate has risen a little bit. It's a small sample. We have to see how that works. And there's no one who will question his base running skills. His base running skills are, are there, and they're not slowing down. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens, but I would not say never – um, about Jordan Schaefer establishing himself uh, with some regular play over the next year. Yeah, I I have to think that even if Minnesota decides they want to go with Hicks or down the road they think Buxton is their guy, presuming he can ever stay on the field, uh, you have to look at a guy like Schaefer and you think to yourself, if he's figured it out, if he's drawing all these walks and making all this contact and basically getting on base at this very high rate because he's using his speed by slapping the ball around and drawing a ton of walks, all of a sudden you have to look at him and say, a guy who can get on base at 400-plus on base percentage and maybe steal 60 or 70 bases in a year with full-time play, I'm not going to say 100, but certainly 50, 60, 70 is not completely out of, uh, out of bounds as far as speculating. This is the kind of guy who could help any team in baseball at the top of the order. Yeah, you're right. And it's kind of interesting. When when, when he was uh, considered a, a very hot prospect and he was a top 100 guy, say, five, six years ago, um, if you remember, they expected him to hit uh, double-digit home runs. Well, and that was before he got suspended for HDH, so that could have been a factor there. But he's not hitting for power anymore. His swing has been totally retooled. It's different. He doesn't have a single home run this year. If he's figured out who he is, uh, like you said, there there's a window of opportunity here. And Jordan Schaefer is only under contract with the Twins through the end of this year, so he's got he may find himself in a situation where he's got a lot of options because certainly other teams are going to look at this situation and go, "Holy cow." You know, this is a guy who could help anybody. Can you imagine him, for instance, uh, uh, sitting on top of the Reds' uh, uh, batting order with Billy Hamilton? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I wasn't aware of his uh, his contract situation, but you're right. If he's a free agent, uh, 
Minnesota may have some competition in signing him, although if Schaefer is smart about it and if he can get the right promises in the right situation, Minnesota might be a good place for him to stay right now. And maybe he'll give them some credit for asking about him and putting him on the field and letting him show his stuff. But, well, we know that oftentimes uh, baseball's a business after all, and it's a fairly mercenary business these days. He might be persuaded, shall we say, by an extra million or two bucks uh, handing over. Jock, thanks again for doing this. Okay, PD. And thanks for all the work all year. I, I talked to Nick about this, but people just hear you and him and and they think, wow, these guys really know their stuff and it, it's all so easy. But there's a ton of work going on behind the scenes that nobody sees, but it sure hears well because of the effort that you're putting in. And I really appreciate it. You've done it all year. You've done a fantastic job. So thanks for that as well. You know what? Thanks thanks, thanks to you for having this thing, PD. It, yeah, it's, it's work sometimes, but it, it rarely feels like it. It's always been a lot of fun, and you help make it that way. Well, thanks very much. Uh, Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, the first of our two expert interviews, we'll have the million-dollar winner, Dave Potts, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Two balls and two strikes on it. Here's the pitch on the way, a swing and a belt. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's the last show of the 2014 season and a pleasure to be joined by BaseballHQ.com subscriber Dave Potts. A couple of weekends back, Dave was the winner of the FanDuel Champions Tournament in Las Vegas and with that win took home the grand prize of a million dollars. That'll pay some entry fees for the next hundred years or so. Dave, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, thanks so much. And congratulations on your big win. Uh, Dave, how long have you been playing fantasy baseball just in general? Um, I started playing in 1999. What kind of formats did you play at that time? Was it straight rotisserie, and then have you played anything else along the way? Um, actually, the way I got into it, um, a lot of people might remember the Small World, I believe it was called Salary Cap Game. Um, it was It was sort of like what what CDM runs, it was a salary cap game, and that was the first thing I played, um, and I just loved it immediately. And then the next year I started playing in rotisserie leagues and head-to-head leagues. Um, and I've, I've, played in, I've played in every format that exists since then, but I actually did start on a salary cap league and then quickly went into the, to roto formats. Did you ever play Strato or any of the Sims? I've never done any, any Sim game now. Uh, I've, I, I think about it every every year, but but never have jumped into that. I know it takes a lot of time, and after a while you have to start figuring out, geez, which ones can I play and which ones can't I play, counting the fact you also have a life to run. Yeah, you could definitely play nothing but different formats of fantasy sports, and it, that would be pretty exciting too. Do you still have a home league that you play in with just with friends and buddies and stuff? Um, I have two leagues left that I've been in for a long time. The The very first league that I ever joined, um, it was a keeper league. Um, they weren't people I knew. It was just sort of I found it on a message board. But um, I've been playing with them since 2001, and I still do that. That's the only free league I still do. We just play for a bobblehead. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also the last head-to-head league I do. I don't really like head-to-head, but I've been in that one so long. And then the first auction league I ever did was a live auction league 
with some guys in Atlanta um, about seven or eight years ago, so I still play in that league. Do you go down to Atlanta and have a live draft still? Uh, we don't do that anymore. Uh, people have moved and spread out, so now it's it's the same group of guys, but it's just online because everyone's sort of all over the place now. Let's talk about the big night uh, you played and won the FanDuel Daily Championship. And before we talk about your tactics and the tournament itself, for that matter, I just want to ask you about the night. How far in along that evening of baseball were you when you started to think you might have a chance to finish relatively high or maybe even to win the whole thing? I really sort of knew early on that I was going to be competitive. No one, no one had a team that really took off from the beginning. Um, everyone was kind of bunched kind of low through the first you know, hour of the games. And I was, I was in the top 10 pretty much from the, from the get-go. So I knew, I knew right away that it was going to be a, a nail-biting night. And then how far in when you thought, hey, I, I could really win this thing? That was the night that the game in Colorado got canceled um, with the water main. And as soon as that game got canceled, I had no players in that game. Um, that's when I knew, wow, I really have a shot at this. Um, that's, when it, that's when it got real. Um, because, you know, only a handful of teams that were in the top 10 at that point didn't have somebody in that game. Oh, right. Um, so, you know, when that game got canceled, everyone kind of started checking their lineups, checking the scoreboard. You know, how does this, who does this help? Who does this hurt? Um, and right, right around that, time I hit a I had a couple guys hit home runs and fr- from there I was in the top two or three pretty much the whole night so I knew I knew it was going to be going to be close at that point pretty big difference between top two or three and winning the whole thing I imagine your refresh button on your browser got to work out how late was it while there was still a chance that somebody could get a couple of late innings uh, of you know five strikeouts or a couple of late home runs and beat you yeah it was a very surreal night. I mean, I, I barely rem- remember it. I mean, I was just sort of sitting there borderline in shock for a while. Um, I had a pretty big lead um, for a while towards the end, but there was one guy, the guy who finished second, had um, three players on Houston left, and he was he, he was right behind me. And the, the top of the ninth inning of that Boston-Houston game, he had the, the first three guys up to bat. Ooh. And he needed about 10 points to catch me, which with three good batters, that is, you know, that's very doable. So those last three at bats, and actually, he did he did get a home run out of Jason Castro, which made it real close. But he needed a couple more points. So as soon as those those other two batters got out, um, that's when I knew I had it. And uh, let's talk about the tournament itself, Dave. You had to win your way into this thing. You couldn't buy your way in. How did you win your way into the big tournament? I won um, an entry back in April. Um, this was a tournament that I had heard about. I actually heard about this tournament when I was in Vegas drafting at the NFBC. Um, FanDuel sent a couple guys out there uh, to sponsor the NFBC, and they, you know, they said, "Hey, we're doing this thing in August where you can win a million dollars." And everyone kind of stopped and wait, what'd you say? <laughs> um, so at that point, I knew I wanted to try to get into this. So early in the season, um, I entered a bunch of the qualifiers trying to trying to get a seat in this, and it was in April. Uh, Zach. Zach Grinke was my pitcher that night and pitched an incredible game. And I had a a stack in the um, in the Orioles Blue Jays game that night, and the game went like ten to eight, um, and that was that was how I won won my way into it. And okay, let's talk about the tactics and rules of the tournament. So as we discuss what went on, people have a clearer understanding of what your thinking was. 
what were the roster rules? How what was your salary cap? How many slots do you have? What positions and so forth? And how is the game scored? On FanDuel, there your lineup is is like a regular baseball team. You have nine players. You got one pitcher, one at each position with three outfielders. Um, and the scoring on on FanDuel is very simple and easy to follow. Um, part of the reason it's my favorite daily site is the fact that it it's it's very easy to figure out what you need when someone hits a double and scores a run, you don't have to get out your calculator to figure out what it is. It's basically one point for a single up to four for a homer. You get a point for an RBI and a run and a walk, two points for a steal. Um, the pitching's just uh, one point per inning, one point per strikeout, and you lose a point for an earned run, and then wins are worth four points. Is there any uh, negative counting for, for instance, you said that you lose a point for a pitcher giving up a, an earned run. What about a hitter making an out or hitting into a double play, getting caught stealing, anything like that? So the only negative point is you lose uh, 0.25, like a quarter of a point per out. So an 0 for 4 would be minus 1. So the negative, it is a negative, but, I mean, an 0 for 4 is the same as getting one walk gives you a point. So you can lose points for batters, but you can't lose a lot of points with your hitters. I spoke with our mutual friend uh, Todd Zola about your uh, success this last week on the pod, and he thought it was a pretty bold move of you to spend so aggressively on David Price. I think his price was eleven million out of thirty-five. Is that right? Yeah, it was eleven. Yeah. And uh, so that's almost a third. And a couple of questions came to my mind when I saw that. First of all, how common is it in this game for an owner to commit so big a portion of his cap to a starting pitcher? Um, it's really pretty common. Um, I personally always start with the pitcher, um, and I'm going to spend whatever I need to spend to get the pitcher that I want. Uh, you know, David Price was like 25% owned that night, so fourth of fourth of the people in this tournament went with Price. Um, it's it's not it's not that unusual to see people spending a lot on a pitcher because that's the one spot where you can best guess how a guy's going to do that night. I mean. It, it's the most predictable spot in your lineup. So that's where the closest to guaranteed points you can get is by going with the pitcher. And so I guess David Price that night was pitching against Seattle, not exactly the 27 Yankees for a, a offensive powerhouse. Even though they had Felix Hernandez going for them, that, that didn't really factor into your decision-making, I guess. Um, it did some. It was really an interesting night that um, you know Price and Felix were the only two aces going and they were going against each other. Usually I would try to avoid someone who's going against another good pitcher because you do want that win. Um, but the next guys down the list were just not good enough pitchers for me to want to use. So um, basically it came down to uh, between Price and Felix. And, you know, the strikeout is a really important thing. Um, and I, so I went through the lineups and looked at, you know, the strikeout rates of the lineup of both teams, and I just thought Price had the better shot of, getting more strikeouts against that weaker lineup than Felix having to go against Detroit. The other tactical decision Todd Zola noted about how you built your roster was that you stacked your hitting roster. You mentioned uh, in the earlier tournament that you had stacked uh, certain teams and stacking, for those of you in the listening audience who don't know what that is, it's the practice of loading up with multiple hitters from uh, just a handful of teams. And in fact, of your eight hitters, you had three Blue Jays, three Angels, two Red Sox, and nobody from any other team. So what is the advantage of the stacking approach to you? The general conventional wisdom in daily, uh, which I think is I think is correct, is that in a tournament where you really need to finish up near the top, 
stacking is is a good way to go because ideally if one one guy gets an RBI he's knocking in one of your other players so you're getting that run as well as that RBI so you're sort of hopefully piling tops uh points on top of each other um so in a tournament that's usually how I go um and uh, on this day um you know I'd spent so much money on David Price there were two hitters that I really wanted in my lineup that was Ortiz and Jose Bautista so um I had those three players, Price, Ortiz, and Bautista, and then I pretty much had to build around that and fit what I could. Um, and I, I targeted those three teams. Um, those were really the only teams that I was looking at and trying to get get as many guys from them as I could. And why those three teams? The way that I play is I'm playing more against a pitcher than I'm playing on a hitter. Um, there's a lot of things that I do in daily that, honestly, I don't know if it's the correct way to go. Um, I, I don't consider myself an expert at all in, in daily, but um, I think it's easier to predict what pitcher is going to get beat up than to predict what individual hitter is going to have a big day. Um, so it was that day, uh, Toronto was going against John Danks, and uh, he gets you know hit pretty hard by righty, so I had three right-handed Toronto bats. Boston was going against Brad Peacock, who's you know had been really terrible yeah. up to that point. So I got a couple of lefties against Peacock, and then the Angels were in Texas against Colby Lewis, which I you know Colby Lewis is I don't always hate him, uh, but the Angels have really been hitting the ball in Texas. Um, I just felt like they were going to be able to score runs that night. And Texas is a pretty friendly hitters environment. Do you look at the park at all? Um, I do. Yeah, um, it's pretty unusual for me to ever play anyone in you know a san diego type park almost regardless of the matchup i sort of use it as a tiebreaker um you know the the toronto white Sox game you know it was in chicago but that's a good park um so i don't i don't overdo the park factor um but it i certainly look at it now, the obvious critique that I've heard about the stacking approach in building a roster is the concern that you're putting most of your eggs in very few baskets. And I guess we saw an example of that, as you mentioned, with the Cincinnati-Colorado game. It's a, it's a game in Colorado, which is a very friendly hitter's environment, as we all know. So that would kind of encourage you to look at the Colorado lineup. The more usual issue in this eggs-in-a-basket situation would be facing a hot pitcher. If you go into that situation, you say, I'm going to pick this team of hitters, and I'm going to do that because this pitcher is very bad, you run the risk of the pitcher having just a terrific night. The Jays didn't do much against John Danks on your night, and two of your least productive hitters were Jays, including Jose Bautista, I think might have been your most expensive and least productive hitter. So how do you respond to this idea that aggressive stacking increases your risk? Well, there's no question it's a riskier strategy, um, and that's why it's generally sort of a tournament-only play where you really need to finish high. The other kind of game, daily game um, is what people call a cash game where like a 50-50 or a double up where basically half of the field doubles their money. So if you play a tournament with 100 teams and you, know, you put in $5 and the top 50 all get $10, um, so there's no difference between finishing 48th or finishing third. Right. Stacking is usually not as good of a strategy, at least in my opinion, um, because you can't, if you get three guys who get zeros, um, it's going to hurt you more. But in, in these tournaments, you know, the difference between finishing, there were 70 people in this tournament, between finishing 70 and finishing 20th 
wasn't that big of a difference. So when you're really shooting for the top, you, you have to take some chances um, and just, you know, realize that you're risking if, if one of those teams does give you 0 for 12, um, you're just not going to win that night. When you're looking at your batting lineups, uh, what stats or data do you like to look at to pick individual hitters once you've settled on the teams you want to stack? Well, I'll start this by saying that, again, I am not a daily game expert. There are, there are a lot of people who, you know, you call them grinders, who play daily sports for a living hours every day, and they've got, you know, algorithms and computer models telling them who to use on a certain day. I play, um, you know, most days outside of this tournament, I'm just playing the daily games for fun, and I don't dig that much into splits. I'm just like sort of eyeballing it and saying, hey, this is going to be fun tonight. I'm going to play, put five bucks and a couple of double ups and play. Um, so when it gets to a tournament like this, basically I made a list of the lineups of the teams I knew I liked, and I wrote their, those hitters splits both season long and like last 30 days. Um, which is something you can do on HQ. You know, it's got last 31 days, last seven days, and full season with all these different numbers. Right. And I just looked at um, how they were hitting on-base percentage, slugging percentage against, you know, righties or lefties, depending on who they're facing for those different time periods, and tried to find guys who looked like they had a splits advantage on that night. And then, you know, the salary was a big part of it. I couldn't just choose whoever I wanted. I had a very small number of guys that were going to be able to fit in that lineup after I had Price, Ortiz, and Bautista. I mean, I only had, you know, another 15 guys to choose from because I couldn't just get the, the highest price guys that I wanted. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with David Potts, the winner of the FanDuel Million Dollar Tournament. And Dave, uh, you're also a singer-songwriter by trade, and I guess it's fair to say primarily in the folk genres. How did you get into that, and how long have you been doing it? Um... I've been playing music my whole life. I started guitar when I was five. Um, I was uh, started writing songs in like eighth grade. Um, I recorded my first record when I was in twelfth grade. Um, I won't say how long ago that is, but <laughs> it was on a cassette because CDs weren't around yet. So it's about that long ago. Um, and um, and then I played. Uh, Full-time, I was a full-time touring musician. I toured all around the country for about 15 years, just playing coffee houses and folk festivals and small venues. So it's something I've, I've always done. This is a somewhat corny music interview question, but what artists have influenced you as you were developing your own style? Um, I grew up playing John Denver music. That was my mom, loved John Denver, and the, the first probably 20 songs I learned how to play were John Denver songs. So it was sort of my first influence. Um, and a lot of that sort of... 70s folk style musician like the James Taylor and Dan Fogelberg type stuff. Right. Um, and then after I started writing music, I started listening to more um, contemporary folk, modern singer-songwriters, people that most people have never heard of that you'll never hear on the radio but are you know, playing the small theaters and small venues um, and, and writing all their own music. Well, throw a couple of names at us. Maybe some of the listeners will check them out. Um, my first real big influence in that genre was David Wilcox. Um, uh, there's guys, uh, John Gorka and Pierce Pettis, a lot of these guys that, um, you know, still to this day, they're, they're out driving around playing, you know, 
50 to 100 seat theaters, but just really incredible, incredible songwriters and storytellers. Uh, yeah, I saw John Gorka and I talked with him at a folk festival once. I was a newspaper man and uh, he had a, a song out on an album that was about, I think it was about Larry Holmes, if I'm not mistaken. It was a, a boxing related song. He was, he's a terrific player. If you ever get a chance to see John Gorka, take, take it up because he's, he's really, really good. Uh, one of the big advantages, Dave, of an audio format like podcasting is that we can play a song rather than just talking about it. So, uh, you've chosen a song of yours called If I Broke the Record. Tell us about the song. Well, I decided to give you a baseball themed song for the, for the podcast. Um, I wrote this song in, uh, 2005, right around the time when, all this steroid stuff was kind of blowing up. It was, um, you know, McGuire and Sosa and those guys were testifying in front of Congress. And it was before Bonds broke the record, but you kind of knew it was coming. And, you know, as baseball fans, I think we were all sort of torn between, I just, I just love baseball, but this is such a mess right here. So I wrote this song uh, from the perspective of a minor league baseball player um, and just sort of trying to capture some of the beauty of the game with a little bit of the struggle of the situation. Tonight in Carolina The bleachers are empty and quiet Not a ball's been hit my way all night I hit a grounder up the middle But the shortstop made the play I'll never make it to the big leagues this way Smell of fresh cut grass and peanut shells fills the southern sky. We'll be heading back to Birmingham tonight. These towns roll by like tumbleweeds through the windows of these late night trains. To those of us down here, it's still a game. I may never be a hero, and you'll never know my name. If I broke the record, I would do it clean Last week out in Greenville, about an hour before the game The boy was watching warm-ups with a big smile on his face and He put down his popcorn, held out a ball and pen he looked just a little awestruck as I signed it for him. I didn't ask for money, I just smiled and shook his hand. You should have seen the spring in his step as he ran to show his dad. These towns roll by like tumbleweeds through the windows of these late night trains. To those of us down here, Still a game I may never be a hero And you'll never know my name But if I broke the record I would do it clean America's favorite pastime simple and it's pure We all still watch the big leagues But now we're not so sure If you can catch a game in Birmingham On a perfect summer day 
I'll run out every grounder Cause that's how I learned to play It's not glamorous here in AA It's not for everyone But baseball's what I do It's who I am and what I love These towns roll by like tumbleweeds Through the windows of these late night trains To those of us down here Still a game. I may never be a hero, but you'll never know my name. But if I broke the record, I would do it clean. From the 2006 album 1299, available at iTunes, that's Dave Potts. And if I broke the record on Baseball HQ Radio, Dave, is baseball a motif in your songwriting? Have you others? Um, not really. I have two or three baseball songs, um, but you know, I don't. I don't actually write too much about baseball. And as a fan, do you have any favorite baseball-related songs? There's a singer-songwriter named Chuck Brodsky who has written dozens and dozens of baseball songs that are just fantastic. And he tells, unlike me, I you know I sort of created a story. He tells a lot of true stories. He, he, he's a sort of a baseball historian and takes stories and puts them in, into song. So if you, like, if you like baseball music, I would definitely recommend Chuck Brodsky. Do you spell Brodsky with an I at the end or a Y? Uh, with a Y. B-R-O-D-S-K-Y. All right, Chuck Brodsky, check that out. Uh, Dave, uh, during the season, we always ask our guests to talk about studs and duds for the balance of the season. These are guys you'd like to acquire for studs for the rest of the year, maybe look ahead to next year as a sleeper keeper. The duds are going to be guys, obviously, that you're not so crazy about for either the next few weeks uh, down the stretch or maybe for next year as well. And so let's go ahead and do that, with uh, starting with the American League and a stud hitter, a guy you really like for the stretch or as a keeper. Well, this one doesn't help anybody because it's not a guy you're going to be able to pick up. I just, I just got to say his name one more time this year, and that is Edwin Encarnacion. Um, he was my big guy coming into the year, and he's been terrible really since he's come back from the injury. But I just feel like if there's one guy who's going to go on a tear that can push you from fifth to first the rest of the way, you know, hit 12 home runs in two weeks, I still think he's going to put another one of those streaks together. I just love that guy. And uh, I don't know very much about the daily games, but is his poor performance likely to be reflected in the salary cap cost imposed on you for rostering him? Does it go down if he gets worse and worse? It does, yeah. They, they fluctuate constantly. So when a guy has a, a long slump, the, the price does go down to where you can, you can start to, to buy him again. And in the National League, who's a stud hitter you like? I looked through some 12-team leagues last night to see who was still available, and I was kind of surprised that... Um, Ender Inciarte is still available in a lot of leagues. Um, usually people just love prospects and scoop up the young guy. And um, he's been hitting great. He's still available in a lot of leagues. And I just think they're going to let him play every day. Um, he makes great contact, and he's really fast. Um, I, I expect him at some point, maybe this year, to start stealing a bunch more bases. And moving on to the dud hitters, these are guys you don't want. Who's a hitter in the American League you think could be a dud? This is another one that you know probably doesn't help me that much to tell you because you can't drop him. But I- I'm going to say Miguel Cabrera. Um, again, I love Miguel Cabrera, and I feel bad saying anything bad about him. But he's he does not he's obviously hurt, and they can't sit him now because they're in the race, and he's just not going to give you what what you need from him. And in the National League, a dud hitter. 
Okay, I'm going to give you two guys that are basically the same guy. Um, that some someone's going to get mad at me for saying this, but Jorge Soler and Javier Baez for this season only. Um, I am not generally a guy who jumps on the hot prospect. Um, sometimes it's good for me. Sometimes it hurts me. I just think people are so excited about these guys. I'm not saying don't pick them up under any circumstances, but don't be the guy who drops Matt Holiday to pick up Jorge Soler. Yeah, that's really good advice. A year ago or so, I did a column for BaseballHQ.com, and what I did was I looked at all the top prospects, or so-called top prospects, guys who were top 10 draft picks, top 50, and so on, and just saw how many of them were actually fantasy contributors in their first year, or especially in the year that they were activated, and the answer was pretty darn few. I was really surprised. I knew it would be less than we thought, but it was way less than we thought. Yeah, I just think you got to be careful. I mean, if if you have Yunel Escobar as your middle infielder, then by all means drop him and pick up Baez. But, you know, you've got to assume that these proven veterans are going to outplay these rookies right away. And I just think people, people go a little too nuts sometimes on these top prospects. Uh, let's move out to the mound. Some stud pitchers you would target for the balance of the year or as keepers. And again, uh, let's start with the American League. Who's a stud pitcher you like? Um, I love Matt Shoemaker. Um, I, yeah, I guess I'm a little late on telling you to get him because he's been great, but he's on one of my main teams that I picked up recently, so I've watched his last several starts, and he just looks fantastic to me. Um, and when I looked at his innings pitched, he's not, you know, he's actually not pitched a lot of innings compared to what he's done before, so he's not going to get shut down or shouldn't wear down, and the Angels really need him now. I just think he's legit. Yeah, that's a good call. He's going to pitch. They've got very little uh, other options, and he has done really well so far. How about in the National League, a stud pitcher? I've been waiting for this guy to come around, and he's, he's actually been pretty good. Um, and again, you, he's taken. You probably can't pick him up. But Matt Latos, um, of all the guys who were injured at the beginning of the year, he was supposed to be the guy who came back right away with no side effects, and he sort of took the longest to come back. And I feel like he's still building his way back, but he's still an ace to me. Um, Maybe that's more of a keeper play and a next-year play. Like, I think his price will be pushed down next year and in keeper leagues because he was injured and took so long to sort of get back up to his usual self. And finally, Dave, your dud pitchers, guys you don't want on your roster, you could trade. If you if you could trade them, you would, uh, and you're certainly not going to make any move to acquire them. In the American League, a pitcher you think has the good potential to be a dud? It's a guy that I really still love long-term and even loved two weeks ago, and that's um, Jordano Ventura. Um, and now he's got the little injury. He got scratched on Wednesday night. I feel like he's probably given what he can give this year. And I think if the Royals weren't in the race, they'd probably be shutting him down about now. Um, but they're not going to be able to. And I just think he's not going to give you what you what you're hoping for the rest of this year. Although long term, uh, I still love him. Fair enough. And how about a dud pitcher in the National League? You know, I had a really hard time coming up with this one, so I'm going to give you the answer, which is my theory in drafting draft and hold leagues. In NFBC, they do those 50-round draft and hold leagues, and my theory in that is every National League pitcher is fantastic. So I really couldn't come up with a dud um, unless I wanted to say Adam Wainwright, I think, is legitimately struggling. Um, I just I kind of like every National League pitcher.
which is probably not a great answer for the podcast, but that's all I got. Hey, whatever works for you. I mean, I don't want you to say, pick a guy to be a dud, even if you don't buy it. Uh, If you don't think there's duds, then there's no duds. Uh, Finally, uh, Dave, before I let you go, tell listeners where they can catch up with your work. Um, You can find my music, you know, wherever you find music, iTunes or Amazon or whatever whatever you do, Spotify. Um, Spotify will pay me one one one-thousandth of one cent if you listen to one of my songs on there. That's a different topic. And um, I've got a website, which is just DavePotts.com, P-O-T-T-S, and you can find find me on there anytime. Uh, uh, Twitter feed or Facebook? Um, yeah, Twitter. Um, I've actually got two Twitters. My music Twitter is Dave Potts Music, and my baseball Twitter, where I post baseball thoughts, is Dave Potts 2. All right. Dave, thanks very much for doing this. Congratulations again on the big win, and uh, maybe try to catch up with you next uh, preseason. That sounds great. Thanks so much for having me. Dave Potts is a singer-songwriter and fantasy baseball player who won a million bucks in a one-day tournament through FanDuel.com. Next up, it's our last feature interview of the season with one of our favorite guests, the writer of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, Joe Sheehan, I guess that makes sense, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Back of throws. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, the final show of the season. I'm Patrick Davitt. Pleasure now to be joined by our second feature guest of the show from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated. Joe Sheehan, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Joe? Hey, Patrick. Good talking again. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, Joe, you said in one of your Joe Sheehan Baseball newsletters a few days ago that the Washington Nationals kind of snuck up on you and others, and right now you say they're the best team in the game, and you're not alone in that. What are the Nationals doing so well, and why didn't we see it coming? Well, you know, offensive balance has been a real key for them. They don't have anybody on the roster. Among the position players, is probably going to get a top-five MVP vote. They might not have anybody in the top ten of the overall MVP, but you know, right now the lineup they're putting on the field after with everybody with everybody but Ryan Zimmerman healthy, and with Estrubo Cabrera taking over at second base since the trade deadline, they have at least average hitters at every position. And I don't mean average hitters for the position; I mean league average hitters. When you don't have any lineup holes, it really helps the lineup flow. This team is you know, the top five in the National League and runs score because of that. So again, no real monster years. And even guys like Harper having disappointing years, but it's worked out to have a very good offense. And of course, Patrick, we know about their pitching. And the rotation's been fantastic, especially with Tanner Rourke kind of coming out of nowhere right. to establish himself as, at the very least, a good mid-rotation starter. And he certainly has been one of, the, one of their best starters this season. Uh, you know, the bullpen, I'm a little concerned about the bullpen, but you put that offense with that rotation, and you're going to win a ton of games. In the article, Joe, you made a table of National League teams by the outs they've given away with sacrifice, bunting, and caught stealing, which uh, a lot of people believe are really foolish things to do because outs are so valuable. The Nats lead the National League by a pretty comfortable margin in fewest outs given up. And you say this is evidence that Matt Williams, a first-year manager, is being pretty effective tactically. Why is that so important? especially in today's game where strikeouts are so prevalent and singles are so hard to come by 
uh, one-run strategies are tend to not really be worth it. So if you're not wasting outs by trying to get from first to second or trying to move up a runner, because you're generally doing those things when you you want to uh, you want to get a single, and singles are hard to come by. So it, it just doesn't work anymore. We're, we're using strategies that were designed in an era where strikeouts made up five, six percent of plate appearances, and we're porting them to an era <clears throat> when strikeouts make up about twenty percent of plate appearances. It doesn't work. So I like to see managers not waste outs. Now you're going to do a certain amount of sacrifice in the National League because of uh, pitchers bunting. But you, when you just look at position players and you look at you know, times caught stealing, that's kind of an indication of you know, how is this manager using his resources, his outs. And Williams, you know, the, the Nationals, when I did the chart, had the fewest caught stealing and the fewest position player sack bunts in the league. Now, Williams has been at the center of a number of controversies. He's kind of in, in this Kirk Gibson, you know, play the game the right way mode. Um, he benched Bryce Harper for not hustling. He just, he's graded on that level. But it just seems like when it comes to the mechanics of the game, playing you know, from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m., he's actually been a reasonably effective manager. Personnel is going to drive these numbers. Um, Matt Williams is at the top of this chart. At the bottom, you have Brian Price of the Reds. However, Brian Price has Billy Hamilton. Billy Hamilton is going to attempt a lot of steals, and he's going to get caught sometimes. He's also going to lay down bunts where he's going to, it's going to be a situation where to run on first and one out, he might bunt for a hit, doesn't get it, gets called for the sacrifice. And because of that, the Reds' numbers in these totals are both inflated. So you can't just say, well, Brian Price is burning out. The personnel is going to drive some of this, but you'd rather be at the top of this chart at the bottom, and then the bottom, and Matt Williams at the top of the chart. I looked at the American League because I was curious, and it turns out probably won't come as much of a surprise. The Oakland A's give away the fewest outs by sack bunts and caught stealings, and in fact, they have an 85% success rate on the st- stolen base attempts, and probably also, no surprise, the Texas Rangers give away the most outs. With 50 caught ceilings, they're only stealing successfully at about a 60% rate. Now, the A's have a reputation for doing things tactically pretty smart, and Texas, to be charitable, does not. But here's a surprise, Joe. The Rays are the fourth worst at giving away outs, and when we consider Joe Madden's rep for being a shrewd guy and a tactical genius, why do you think the Rays are giving away so many outs? I do think personnel and the way their games have fallen are the two big things. Well, the way the games have fallen is just they're not a good offensive team, but they are a good pitching team. So they end up in a lot of these you know, 2-2 games in the ninth, and they end up you know, laying down a bunt to try to move the tying run from first to second. You also don't have a, team, have a team that doesn't have a lot of power, especially with you know Evan Longoria having an off year, Will Myers being hurt for a lot of the year. You know, it's a lot of singles hitters. So you know Madden is trying to move guys up from first to second because he doesn't have a lot of guys that are going to drive in the run from first with a double or a triple or a homer. Uh, and it's, I, I think he's kind of trying to map his game to his strategies. Whether he should be doing that or not, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the sacrifice bunt, as you know. But it feels like watching the Rays, they're doing a lot of these in the eighth and ninth innings of close games with, you know, the likes of you know Escobar and Jose Molina, where you know your other option is a double play. So I don't mean to excuse it. I'm saying that I think in the, this is why I don't want to use these to just make a chart and say you know good manager at the top, bad manager at the bottom. I do think roster and game situations are, are going to apply a little bit here. Joe, just as they were wrapping up the search for the new commissioner, and what a surprise, Rob Manfred gets the nod, you wrote that what the game really needs is a chief baseball officer. What does that mean, and why can't Rob Manfred be it? I'm hoping Rob Manfred is it, but if you look at what the commissioner's job became 
it's, the last time baseball hired a commissioner, went out and did a search and hired a commissioner, was Bartlett, a, a Bartlett Giamatti. They did that search in 1988. We are a full quarter century past that. Faye Vincent took over basically because he was Giamatti's number two after Giamatti died, and then they shoved Vincent out, and an owner took over in Bud Selig. And it's been so long that I think people kind of forgotten it. But Sealy, you know, didn't become commissioner the way all the other guys did. But Sealy became commissioner because he was, you know, a hawk with the owners when they were trying to get a salary cap in 1994. That's so the commissionership kind of became this more owners representative. Not that it was the commissioner wasn't usually aligned with the owners, but there was no sense that the commissioner had a role in the field. It really became an off-field position. I think what we need now is somebody who's going to address the game on the field. You know, I keep checking back to the strikeouts issue. Strikeouts are really starting to take uh, take over the game, and we hear nothing about what Selig or Manfred is going to do about that. It's affecting the watchability of baseball. Patrick, I love baseball as much as anybody alive, and I don't enjoy the game that's being played right now. You know, there there was a play. I'm talking to you on Thursday morning. And there was a play Wednesday night. Angels and Simmons went into section 36 to make a play in the hole and threw the runner out, threw the batter out. There's just not enough opportunities for that anymore because 20, 21% of the time, the batter's striking out. Late in games, it's up to almost a quarter of the time. You know, you've got these power relievers that are striking out 40, 45% of the batters. I just think it's bad for the game. You know, what, are, what is the new commissioner going to do about that? You know, we hear about pace of play, issue, play issues, um, but we've been hearing about that for 20 years. You know, there are on-field issues that we just haven't heard anything from the commissioner, really from Sealing. It seems like the commissioner doesn't have that role anymore, and I'd like to see a commissioner come in or appoint a chief baseball offer to say, okay, the commissioner of baseball is going to deal with TV contracts and relocations and, you know, the business side aspect of the game, but he's going to hire somebody who spends 140 nights in ballparks watching the game and, and working to make it better. And frankly, it's somebody who's not one of the Joe Torre, Tony La Russa, John Hart, all of these people I respect, but you need to get somebody out there who's 30 to 35 years old and is familiar with you know, the play index and who kind of understands the way the game is being played right now. And yeah, analytics are definitely a part of that. Not only the way the game is being played, but the way it's being consumed, it seems like, yes. needs some attention. Uh, the the, uh, the main issue I find in, amongst my younger friends in the rotisserie and fantasy areas, when you ask them, do you watch a lot of games? And they say no. And, and the main reason you mentioned, man, you, you, you said earlier, you know, the, what Matt Williams does between 7, a, 7 p.m. and 10 p.m., it's more like 7 and 10.40 in a lot of instances, not just with Matt Williams, but... You know, I got kids. I got to get them up in the morning. I can't stay up till 10, 11 at night uh, waiting for a game to finish. And the other night, I, I know it can happen, but there was a game that finished in an hour and 52 minutes or something like that. Should be the standard. Yeah, I tend to be less dogmatic about this because, for the most part, time of game issue has tended to be a media issue. Um, I've, my solution has always been to pay sports writers by the hour. And I think that would knock off a lot of the clamoring for shorter games. But yeah, I. I these these issues all work up a piece. Everybody wants to focus on guys who step out of the box and pitchers who step off the mound. I think both are responsible. I, th- I think that if you put the onus on batters to stay in the box, pitchers are going to stand on the mound. If you put the onus on pitchers with a pitch clock, you're going to create all kinds of nightmares. I, I can't see a scenario where you're going to assign an umpire to count down from 12 or to look at a, a pitch clock. And what if he, oh, he reset it at the wrong time. He reset it at, there's a, there, there's, you know, a disaster down that road. I want to try to avoid that. I think the way that you get the game to speed up, one is, as I say, the, the strikeout rate 
take and rake baseball, you know, hitters working deep counts, the game is necessarily going to be longer than it was in 1973. There's also the issue of TV, uh, of television. Baseball itself has added in, you know, let's say they've added in 30 seconds of commercials. I'm just going to pull a number. One extra commercial every half inning. Well, that's eight and a half minutes. So right there, you've got eight and a half minutes of time that, you know, it's not really helping the fans at all, but it's generating money for them. I don't think they're going to want to cut that out, but we don't talk about that when we talk about the additional length of game. The single fastest way that MLB could bring, could shorten games, pick up the pace, and, you know, kind of fix this problem is to say we're going to, we're going to cut back on betweenings uh, breaks. We're going to take one full commercial out. And if it costs us a few bucks, that's fine. It's a long-term thing. I don't think they're going to do that. They're going to put the onus on the players. So I, I agree with you that length and pace of games are, are something that this chief baseball officer or something that you want to look at, but it's a difficult problem to solve. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, you had an interesting take on the research into pitch framing, which has been hailed, and quite rightly, as a breakthrough in assessing player value. And you noted, however, that if catchers can essentially fool the home plate umpire into calling a ball as a strike, there's something inherently wrong with how the balls and strikes are being called. What did you mean about that? Well, and again, I don't want to, this is, uh, fully behind the pitch framing research, you, you look at the work that Mike Fast did and a lot of the follow-up work that was done by uh, Dan Brooks and Harry Pavlidis and a lot of other great researchers. I don't want to... Uh, I just look at it differently. Um, what, what pitch framing research tells us is that umpires are not calling the strike zone the way it's called in Rule 2.0, whatever it is in the, in the rule book. The rules say that the pitch is called based on where it passes the passes home plate. Pitch framing says that the pitch is called based on where it hits the catcher's glove or what happens when the catcher catches it. So it's a violation of Rule 2.0. And my argument has always been human eyes are no longer remotely the best technology for calling balls and strikes. And whenever you look into pitch framing research or if you look in the work that's done by Fangraphs and behind the box score where they look at you know the strike zone on 0-2 versus 3-0, the strike zone on left-handed batters versus right-handed batters, there are all of these ridiculous biases built into home plate umpiring that would not be there if you had an automated system. An automated system doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be better than what we have now. So I look at the pitch framing data, and to me it's the final nail in the coffin for home plate umpire. Pitch framing tells me that umpires can't do the job. So I think it's the perfect opportunity to go in and say, hey, look, guys, if you're this influenced by what the catcher does, this job is not for you. Let's get the robots. I agree with you about the robots, and the example I always like to look at, the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament is on right now, and they use robots, essentially, to call uh, balls in and out, and that's when a ball is hitting the ground against or, or inside or outside a line that's drawn on the ground, and they still can't do it. And the speeds are roughly the same. The spin is probably a little uh, more sharp on a tennis ball than it is on a thrown pitch, but gosh almighty, you add in that third dimension of the height of the, of the strike zone plus the depth of the plate in addition to the width of the plate, there's no way anybody can call this accurately. And in a mailbag column, one of your readers said, okay, what happens if we adopt automated ball and strike calling and let's assume the system is more or less completely accurate? What would happen to the game on the field and for fantasy owners, do you think? I think there'd be a parade of left-handed hitters down Fifth Avenue. Left-handed hitters are just getting killed by the way the current strike zone gets called. Hitters in general, because you've got the left-handed strike zone, which extends you know, on any given night, two to four inches off the outside of the plate. 
and it's unhittable pitches. If you're standing in the plate, and say you got the plate with a bat in your hands, you just you physically can't reach some of these pitches that are being called strikes. You certainly can't hit them with it, with any kind of authority. There's also a fairly low strike being called, and that's actually one of the biggest factors in today's pitching-dominated game is that this low strike is being called. You've got all these pitchers that throw this power stuff down, and just hitters are overmatched. If you combine the increased velocity in the game with you know, the, these splitters and cutters and all these pitches that are just very t- sharp-breaking pitches, it, it's a little overwhelming. I think if you were to call a more rulebook strike zone where the higher strike gets called but the outside one doesn't, these pitchers are more hittable. So you're going to see more balls in play. I think you'll see more batters swing the bat. I think that would be good for the game overall. And I'm speculating here. It's hard to say exactly what the effects would be. But I think the immediate effect of a more consistent strike zone, in other words, a fastball on 3-0 that is in a particular spot should be a strike the same way that same pitch on 0-2 should be a strike. We've got to get that kind of consistency. Batters have to be able to go to the plate knowing that the strike zone is the strike zone. So, yeah, I think it would, I think it would help balance pitchers and hitters, uh, but I think it, just, it would, in general, make for a better baseball game. There are just too many times I'm watching baseball where a pitch gets called, and I'm like, that hitter had absolutely no chance to hit that. It wasn't anywhere near the plate, and he got caught, and he got rung up. There was a 1-1 pitch in the ninth inning, and I'm going to forget this, the, the game. I apologize. But it was like a game-sensitive situation, like tying run at the plate or tying run on base, and there was a 1-1 pitch that had no business being a strike that got called a strike, and it completely changed the at-bat, and it was the last out of the game the batter eventually made out. I don't want umpires having that level of influence over a baseball game. I've seen some heat maps and, and general overviews of how the strike zone is called that indicate that overall umpires tend to call it a little too low, that they, if you take the box that the strike zone should be, it's roughly the right size, but they've got it down below the knees and well below the letters. And I've also sort of thought about this, and if they moved the strike zone back up and assuming they have the size more or less right top to bottom, not side to side, is this going to confer an advantage on high heat pitchers that might offset any of the gains from uh, the other aspects that you've discussed? I remember it was 1988, I should say, when they uh, they redefined the top of the strike zone, and they said they were going to give pitchers the high strike. And if you remember, 87 was that incredibly high offense year. 88 offense dropped off significantly, strikeouts went up, and a lot of power pitchers who struggled to that point had big years. Um, it was all Hershiser's first big year. Uh, Danny Jackson went to the Reds and had an absolutely huge year. Yeah, I remember that. So, yeah, I think there's an argument to be made that power pitchers, especially, I mean, back then guys were throwing 91-92. Now the average starting pitcher throws 91, and, you know, the best ones are working at 93-94 all the time. Relievers are working at 99-100. I think the high strike would confer an advantage on power pitchers. Um, but I also think hitters, yeah, they, there would be an adjustment period. I think that, again, if you're, if you're a hitter, <clears throat> you do... As difficult as it is to hit a high strike, it's easier to hit a high strike than it is to hit a pitch three inches off the outside core. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan. And Joe, your your baseball newsletter recently, you sent out a, a discussion of how the baseball media is working these days, your own personal experience. Uh, in In a couple of minutes, can you encapsulate what your thinking is about the future of newsletters like yours and the future of baseball writing in general because of the dominance of media and the absolute insistence by the audience that everything be free. Yeah, we've uh, <clears throat> kind of trained people that content should be free, even though you, until the internet, you always used to have to you know, pay 25 cents or 10 cents, whatever it was for, uh, for, for the newspaper, you know, 50 cents, 75 cents for the dearly departed national in the early 1990s. 
uh, there's an expectation that things be free, and I just I don't think that model is going to support enough good content. Obviously, we've seen an absolute disaster in the print realm, newspapers just being eviscerated. Uh, we've seen a lot of trade-offs in, the, in magazines as well. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, that, that kind of ports over to the Internet where we're kind of still feeling our way around what the model is going to be. If you're ESPN, if you're Yahoo, if you're NBC, I think there's room to do an ad-supported model just because you do so much volume. On the other hand, uh, a lot of those places are certainly ESPN and NBC. There's the issue of being rights holders as well, and you wonder what level of journalism is going to be uh, practiced at places like that. You know, how much compromise is going to be in place? You know, the leagues have gotten very aggressive about their own media. You look at you know, MLB, MLB's website. You look at you know the NFL and NBA.com have, have done. They kind of, particularly MLB, has made it a point to provide their own coverage. I think that's where the leagues want to go to. My model essentially cuts out all the middlemen and says, I'm going to provide content, you're going to pay for it, there's going to be absolutely nothing in between us. Now, when I did this, <clears throat> I started this four and a half years ago, and the line I used was that individuals will recognize and support quality if they're given that option. So you've got to let people know that there are options other than just going to the main sites, but you're going to have to pay for them. You're going to have to go back to the idea that content doesn't necessarily always have to be free. The obligation on someone like my end is to say, I'm going to be good enough for that money. And it's, it's a contract that you try to build with people. And you know, from my standpoint, you know, I think there's been a modicum of success. Um, I think growth is always going to be a challenge because for one individual to get the word out is, is certainly a project. Um, I'm personally speaking, I'm not a particularly good marketer. Um, yeah, you know, I spent a lot of years trying to help build prospectus, and uh, I think we did a successful job that had absolutely nothing to do with me being a marketer. It had to do with incredibly smart people like Gary Huckabay and uh, Christina Carl and Keith Woolner and Nate Silver helping to build that brand. I'm a content guy. So I think that people who have that blend of skills where they can do good content and they can also market are going to have an advantage. And you're working against, like I said, there's an entrenched... Uh, establishment of baseball content. If you're a baseball fan, you can get free content at Fangraphs. You can get free content at a lot of different places that do exceptional work. So you're going to have to be very good. You're going to have to convince people to spend money on you. And when they do spend money on you, you're going to have to be worth that money. But I think that's the model. I think the model is individuals going directly to the audience. Um, I believe, and I, I don't, I mean, I'm kind of pulling in some examples here. You know, we've seen some musicians do this. And certainly in the era of iTunes, where you know, the music industry has been fragmented, and <clears throat> you know it's not the model of re- release an album every 18 months and get four singles off it and then go tour off the album. You know this whole thing has changed. Uh, we've seen uh, Louis, C- Louis C.K. did a thing where he released a concert video. I believe he sold it for five bucks directly through his website. I think you're seeing a lot of places, a lot of people, uh, kind of figure out how do I go directly to my audience and cut out this huge you know, superstructure that just takes money and doesn't add a whole lot of value. So that's a very long answer, which basically means that I believe in the model of going directly to the audience. And given the state of you know, the, the media environment, I think it may be the only model that's going to work long term. And there are other examples starting to pop up, Joe, uh, at Amazon.com, for instance, their self-publishing area. Now that, now that the... Uh, wannabe author can actually write and produce a, a, a novel or a full-length book, 
and print it out as an EPUB and not have to incur the costs of, of all of the physical production of books. There are authors on Amazon self-publishing and self-marketing, and they're making literally millions of dollars. If they were being counted in the in the bestseller list, some of them would be on those bestseller lists. Of course, the industry says we're not going to let you put your name on our bestseller list because you're not selling through our mechanisms. And the only other comment I'll make about what you said is, the big sites, you mentioned NBC and the big TV networks and ESPN and so forth. And while some of them do some interesting work, there's a lot of Me Too journalism on there, especially when they rely on ex-players or ex-baseball front office people to be their content providers. And it gets uh, you get a lot of information that's reinforcing what the other guy just finished saying and not a lot of originality. And, you know, agree with you, disagree with you. I'm a longtime subscriber to the Joe Sheehan newsletter. And I can tell you that at least it makes me think, and it's worth 20 bucks a year just for that. I appreciate that, Patrick. And you know, I think that among stat heads, we have to be careful about that. There ends up being a stat head group thing. I mean, we can talk about ex-players and ex-managers as much as we want, but you know, on any given day, you might see me, Rob Nyer, Dave Cameron, Jay Jaffe, Craig Calcaterra all kind of give you, you know, a stat head version of the same show. I think we've got to all guard against that. We've got to all provide, just because you're kind of coming at it from the quote-unquote smart viewpoint doesn't mean you can't also be uh, subject to some of these these potential biases. I mean, we've, always got to, we've all got to uh, ward that off. And to your credit, I think the, all of the guys you mentioned do do uh, exactly that. They they are original thinkers. You and and all of those guys and others are providing original, insightful commentary on a game that everybody that certainly provides a lot of opportunity for it. And uh, I guess it remains to be seen in the long run whether somebody's willing to pay twenty bucks a year for it. I think they should. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Newsletter. And Joe, uh, you're our last uh, interview of the year, so you get the last shot at studs and duds, our players that we're going to pick for down the stretch. If you want to throw in maybe some sleeper-keeper analysis for next year, that's fine too. Let's start with the hitters, and in the American League, who's a hitter you think could be a stud in the uh, next few weeks or for next year? Mm, he's going to be coming off the disabled list if he hasn't already. Uh, Adam Eaton. Uh, only 96 games played this year, which has tamped down some of his numbers. I think he can be at least a four-category player next year, and I think because of the injury issues this year, he's maybe going to go a little bit less than next year's draft, so next year's auction than he should. Uh, just one homer, just a handful of steals, uh, but he's somebody that batting lead off in that lineup you know, has potential to score you know, 95, 105 runs. I mean, we saw the year that Jose Abreu had. A lot of Jose Abreu's RBIs are going to be because he's going to be driving in Adam Eaton. I really like Adam Eaton next year. I think he's going to have a good September when he plays, but um, I really love him for next year. He did come off the DL a few days ago. How about in the National League, a stud hitter you really like? Uh, I feel like I've been saying this for years, but I just can't figure out how a guy with Jason Hayward's physical tools and play discipline doesn't have bigger numbers. And I look and I say, he's still just 24 years old. You look at war, he actually has one of the higher wars in the league because he's had an incredible year defensively. But the offensive numbers just aren't that impressive. I really just feel like there's going to be a year where he puts it together. He hits 35, 36 home runs, you know, steals some bags, has great contact numbers because he's on base and he's got the power. I think there's a breakout coming along the lines. You know, This might not be the perfect comp, but remember when Matt Kemp had the big MVP year, I want to say it was 2011, I think Haywood could have that kind of breakthrough where he's the best player in the league next year. I did some research a year or two ago for BaseballHQ.com that indicated the guy you wanted was a guy who was finishing the year in which he achieved 800 plate appearances 
Justin, uh, Jason Hayward is, uh, what, three times that now. So uh, mitigating against that fact is he is very young. Most times uh, players don't hit the kind of plate appearance thresholds that Hayward has until they're much older. So, yeah, it's an interesting uh, – Hayward's going to be an interesting guy again next year in, in auctions because somebody's going to take that chance and sooner or later he's going to hit. How about some dud hitters, guys you don't want on your roster, guys you think might be overvalued? And we'll start again in the American League. I think Josh Hamilton is just about done. Um, he had tremendous physical tools, which made up for the fact that he wasn't, you know, a great, you know, small points baseball player. He wasn't very disciplined. He would make mistakes. It, the fact that he was a physical marvel enabled him to play through that for a few years. I look at him now. And, you know, I think the body started to break down a little bit. And when you're somebody who doesn't do all the little things and you start to lose some of those physical skills and it really shows up. I'm not saying he couldn't have a year where he hits 275 with 30 homers. I mean, that obviously that's got fantasy value, especially in today's game. I just don't think it's all that likely. And I think the downside with Hamilton is somebody who eats your batting average and doesn't give it nearly enough in the rest of the categories. I I wouldn't go near him next year or even for this, you know, for this next month. I want no part of him. Big injury risk, too, and, of course, the personal issues. We don't like to harp on them, but they are real, and they have come up in the recent past as well. How about a dud hitter in the National League? I hate saying this because I love the guy, but you know, Joey Votto is somebody I think you got to worry about. Um, turned 30 this year, has had the knee problems. Is he going to be one of these hitters that's hurt by the shift where the batting average you know, takes 30 points of hit? You know, at his best, he was a 30, 35 home run guy. Is he going to be that guy, or is he going to be somebody that's 280 with 85 walks and, you know, 15 home runs? I think we've seen his fantasy peak. I think while he'd probably still be a better real-life player than a fantasy player, from a fantasy standpoint, I'm just not sure he's that guy. The flip side of that is that a good Joey Votto playing in that Reds lineup has a potential for excellent contact context numbers. I mean, if he's hitting behind Joey Hamilton, excuse me, <laughs> Joey Hamilton, uh, Billy Hamilton, um, how many runs might he drive in? If he's hitting ahead of Jay Bruce, how many runs might he score? So there is the risk in not taking him is that he's in a really good lineup position. But I, I just I look at the injuries and the age and the skill set. I think that we've probably seen the best of him. Now let's head out to the mound, Joe. Uh, how about some stud pitchers you would target for the balance of this year or again into next? And we'll start in, again in the American League, a stud pitcher. You know, a lot of the guys that I normally talk about in this category have actually had really big years. Uh, Rick Porcello, Henderson Alvarez, Jake Arrieta is a guy I used to boost. Um, I don't say that to, to pat myself on the back. I say it because finding the next guy is a little bit difficult. I'll mention Kevin Gaussman, who... <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, he's got the pedigree. He's been a great prospect. He was a top prospect in the draft a couple of years ago. The Orioles have managed him in an awkward fashion this year that I think has really hindered his development. They really want to manage his innings while making sure he was available down the stretch, kind of an inverse Strasburg. I don't think it's done him any favors. Um, I think, though, down the stretch, he could very easily pop up with one of these, you know, 1.10 ERA months with a ton of strikeouts and not a lot of base runners. And then going into next year, I think he's going to be the number one starter on that Orioles staff. So still a big Kevin Gossman believer. Not bad this year at 384 earn run average, but the whip is 138. It's a little high, but he's, again, very young. He's just 23, lots of room for growth. How about in the National League, a stud pitcher? I want to go off, uh, off the board a little bit here, uh, kind of find somebody from left field. Carlos Torres has been good in this kind of Swiss Army knife role for the Mets. Uh, started a couple times, got a couple saves. Mostly he's been using it as a, as a patch for whatever they might need. 
if there was a guy who next year was going to be Alfredo Simone, kind of this former an anonymous pitcher comes out of nowhere and provides a you know, number three starter performance, I think it'll be Torres. The Mets obviously have a ton of young pitching, but one of the issues with having a ton of young pitching it's not always there in April. You know, it's not ready to, 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 to be on the mound. If the Mets were to trade Bartolo Colon here in the next couple of days, or if they were to trade Colon over the winter, I think there'd be a role for Torres on this staff next year. I think he could step in and kind of be this, you know, fill-in starter who ends up, you know, providing them 25, 28 good starts. So, you know, this is a, this guy's a little less famous than the ones we've been talking about today, but I like Carlos Torres as a sleeper for next year. I'd like to see him uh, tame the gopher ball a little bit. I agree with you. Uh, now we'll turn on to some dud pitchers, guys you're not that crazy about. How about in the American League? The whole world loves Justin March. And, you know, obviously, I think he got to a great start with the Cubs. I'm just not never been sold. I thought he was, you know, he's pitched like a number three starter the last couple of years. Um, he definitely got off to a good start this year for a Cubs team that, you know, provided pretty good context. He was pitching in some pretty cold weather in, in Wrigley. He's gone in the American League. Strikeout and walk ratio has had numbers have been excellent with the A's, but you know the ERA and the fielding independent pitching just reflect the number three starter, and I think that's who he is. Patrick, I've seen a lot of references to. You'll see the following sentence a lot. Boy, next winter David Price and Jeff Samardzio will be hitting the market. Those two things are not the same, and Samardzio is kind of getting a lot of this grouped into with pitchers that he's just not as good as. I still see him as a number three starter. Potentially durable, but he still has never thrown 200 innings in a season. He'll probably cross that this year. I'm just, I'm not buying in. I'm completely off on just margin. Not to say I think he's bad. I just think that the gap between perceived value and actual value is wide. Yeah, 213 innings last year. And, and I think what people like about him is the high strikeout totals. You know, you're looking at a guy who's going to approach 200 strikeouts again this year, had 200 last year. And I think sometimes those things get overvalued in the grand scheme of things. And certainly Jeff Samarja might be an example. Uh, Joe, tell us where listeners can catch up with you, find out more what's going on with you. Yeah, I write in Sports Illustrated most weeks, especially down the stretch with the baseball coverage picking up. I had a piece in there on Rob Manfred and my hopes for the new commissionership uh, a couple weeks ago. I've got a piece, a sidebar to an Andrew McCutcheon feature coming up next week. Also, you know, you, we talked about the newsletter here. People can get more information on that at joesheen.com. $29.95 for the season, actually for the year, $16.95 for six months. Also follow me at joe underscore sheehan to get commentary and information about the newsletter. I do a ton of radio, Patrick. You know, this is one of a number of issues of uh, uh, shows I'm doing today. Um, just kind of getting the word out there. I love talking baseball, so I, you know, I'm fortunate to get to do it a lot. So, yeah, and uh, appreciate the, getting, getting to talk to you. And uh, also looking forward, if people are thinking about going to the uh, Baseball HQ First Pitch Arizona, I will be out there. I had to miss last year. I'll be out there this year doing the uh, Facts and Flukes panel. Oh, I love the Facts and Flukes panel. Uh, it's one of my favorite things. I used to be the host of it, and it was so much fun as part of a really super fun weekend. And uh, just a reminder, that underscore in Joe underscore she, and that's really important because there's some guy in St. Louis or somewhere that gets a lot of your uh, contact information. A very nice, very patient man in St. Louis who's uh, who tends to get abused for having for for no good reason other than he got to Twitter before I did. So yeah, please drop that underscore. If you're going to be nice, go ahead and forget the underscore. But if you're going to be mean, please put the underscore in there. I imagine he understands it by now, but boy, the, the first few times he started getting, uh, what are you talking about with home runs, you crazy bugger, you know, and he's looking, <laughs> looking around going, huh, what? Uh, have you met him or have you ever had a chance to talk to him? We, we've spots in his, yeah, um, 
I own JoeSheehan.com, and he actually wanted JoeSheehan.com at one point. So he beat me to Twitter. I beat him to the web. Um, I actually, if I ever get to St. Louis, I promised him the biggest, best dinner I could possibly get the man. He's been incredibly patient over the years. And he, I just from, from just from talking to him online, you know, he seems like a very nice guy, and he's been incredibly patient with this whole situation. So, um, yeah, it's just, so please, use the underscore. All right. Thanks, Joe. appreciate it. Uh, it's our last show of the year, so it's an honor to have you on to finish us off on a very high note, as always. Uh, talk to you again next year. Patrick, congrats on another big year. I'll talk to you in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Arizona. Next up, our Baseball HQ commentaries. We'll have our Metric Minute, the Pitcher Matchups Report, and Master Notes. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Maggio swinging, it's a whistling line drive to left center field. It's a base hit, it's taken on the second hop by Ripple. The throw is coming in a second, the Maggio is racing for it. The Maggio makes it with a slide and it's saved for a double. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, our final show of the season. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular Friday commentaries. Greg Fishwick is on deck with Baseball HQ pitcher matchups. Ron Chandler is in the hole with Master Notes. And leading off, it's the Metric Minute. And here to tell you about first pitch strike percentage for pitchers is Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield. First pitch strike rate is quickly becoming a commonly used metric on BaseballHQ.com to get a better gauge for a pitcher's control. Uh, first pitch strike rate is simply the percentage of first pitches in an at-bat that result in a strike. Uh, BaseballHQ.com Stephen Nickran wrote a, wrote a great research piece on first pitch strike rate earlier this season. He found that first pitch strike rate correlates very, very well with walk rate for pitchers. Uh, the more first pitch strikes result in lower uh, walk rates. Walk rate and first pitch strike rate are repeatable skills as well, so it's especially useful when validating you know, major changes in a pitcher's walk rate to see if the change is legitimate or more likely to hold uh, moving forward. The average first pitch strike rate for starting pitchers in baseball is roughly around 60%. Um, at this level, the average walk rate is roughly 2.9 walks per nine. For pitchers with higher first pitch strike rates, say 65%, that walk rate goes down to 2.1 walks per nine on average. Uh, 55% first pitch strike rates, lower first pitch strike rates, result in an average walk rate of 3.8. So you can see how closely these two metrics are correlated. The higher the first pitch strike rate, the lower the walk rate. A good example to start with uh, in 2014 for this season is Phil Hughes. Uh, Hughes has always been a solid control pitcher with walk rates in the mid-twos per nine innings. That number's dropped down to 0.8 walks per nine this year, pinpoint control. Um, Not surprisingly, he actually leads all of baseball with a 72% first pitch strike rate. So his ability to get ahead early in the count is paying huge dividends for his walk rate and his overall production. Um, Jeff Samarja is another great example here. Um, His walk rate's been around three for the last two seasons. This year, it's at 2.1. A big driver behind that improvement is a jump in his first pitch strike rate. Um, He had been at around 60% the last two seasons, which again is league average. Um, He's bumped that up to 65% in 2014. So it's more likely that Samarja can maintain his control gains moving forward. Um, Tyson Ross is another case, though not as obvious. On the surface, his walk rate has stayed at 3.2 walks per nine innings each of the last two seasons. Uh, But he's increased his first pitch strike rate from 54 to almost 60% uh, this season. So we could even see more improvement from Ross, especially with his control in what already has been a highly successful season 
uh, for Tyson Ross. So be sure to take a look at first pitch strike rate, especially if you notice you know big changes in walk rates for a pitcher, uh, just to gain some insight if those gains will stick or not uh, moving forward. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our Metric Minute commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for our weekly pitcher matchups report. Remember, our Baseball HQ matchup ratings look at every starting pitcher matchup, assessing both pitcher skills and recent performance, as well as the strength of the opposing team, to arrive at a matchup rating from plus 5 to minus 5. We recommend pitchers who have matchup ratings of 2.0 or higher, while we warn against pitchers with matchup ratings of 0 or worse. Everything in between is a risk versus benefit play that you'll have to assess in the context of your team and your league. Now looking at Cubs lefty Tsuyoshi Wada in St. Louis to face right-hander Justin Masterson and more, here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. This weekend features a double dose of double dips on Saturday, and Chicago fans should be happy regardless of which hometown team they favor. As Wrigley's Double Mint Gum commercials say, they can double their pleasure and double their fun with the Cubs doubleheader in St. Louis and the White Sox doubleheader at home against Detroit. So let's begin our final segment of the season by using the BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool to look at a pair of newcomers in the National League, Tsuyoshi Wada of the Cubs and Justin Masterson of the Cardinals. With Wada's matchup rating at 132 and Masterson's at 187, the two starters seem pretty closely matched. Lest you think Wada is part of the Cubs' youth movement, the 5'11", 180-pound lefty is a 33-year-old who had nine years of experience in Japan before spending three seasons here in the minors. He's put up PQS dominant starts in five of his eight tries for the Cubs, with only one PQS disaster. Meanwhile, in five games since coming to the cards, Masterson has had two PQS dominant starts and two PQS disasters. Masterson's earned run average for St. Louis is 743 thanks in part to an unlucky 54% strand rate and in part to his own 10 walks in 23 innings. Masterson's expected ERA is only 386, but his base performance value of 52 is only half of Wada's 102, so Wada is by no means a bad bet. But Masterson's matchup rating is higher because his team gives him the better chance to win. St. Louis's home record ranks sixth in the majors and third in the National League. The Cubs' road record ranks 27th in the majors and 13th in the National League. Against teams under 500, like the Cubs, the Cards are 36 and 28. Against teams above 500, like the Cards, the Cubs are 27 and 40. Saturday also is the best of times and the worst of times for this weekend's matchup ratings. Right-hander Mike Fires continues to burn through opponents for the Milwaukee Brewers, and he brings in the high heat with a matchup rating of 309 for his start against the Giants in San Francisco. We recommended Fires here last week, and all he did was fire his third straight PQS5. Fires still has luck on his side, with a low hit rate of 15% and a high strand rate of 83%, but he's earned his base performance value of 167. In 28 innings pitched as a starter, Fires now has 32 strikeouts and only four walks. After flourishing in San Diego, Jake Peavy is back in another pitcher-friendly home park at AT AT&T. 
His matchup rating is a very respectable 225. And six starts since coming to San Francisco, Peavy has put up four PQS doms and only one PQS disaster. But the Brewers have a better record on the road than the Giants have at home, a better record against teams above 500, and a better record over their past 20 and 30 games. It looks like fire's fire will spread to San Francisco. Journeyman Jerome Williams is on his third team this year, and they've all been cellar dwellers. This time, it's the fruitless Philadelphia Phillies who have him in their rotation, and he gets the worst matchup rating of the weekend at minus 015. Williams is traveling once again, this time into City Field to face the Mets. The <coughs> fighting Phils are only one game behind their foes, so at least some pride is at stake in this one. Williams has posted three PQS threes in his three starts for Philadelphia, winning his past two, while the Phillies have been on a rare hot streak, going 7-3 and three over their past 10 games. In fact, if you take away the start before the troubled Texas team put him on waivers, when he allowed 10 earned runs in only four innings, Williams has been above average, and perhaps he would not be wearing the albatross of the worst matchup rating for this weekend. But Williams is facing the Dorian Gray of Major League Baseball, Bartolo Colon. At the ages of 39, 40, and 41, Cologne has compiled career-best control rates, which are walks per nine innings pitched, of 1-4, 1-4, and 1-2. Who knows how he does it, but Cologne has seven PQS dominant starts and only one PQS disaster in his past eight outings. He's already faced the Phillies three times this year, posting two PQS 4s and a PQS 5. Cologne has earned his recommended matchup rating of 214, and he should prevail again at home in New York for the Mets. I hope you've enjoyed the 2014 edition of Weekend Matchups as much as I've enjoyed doing them for you. If you're at First Pitch Arizona, look me up and let me know. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and was our pitcher matchup segment commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio every week this year. If your league rules or format let you take advantage of pitcher streaming, then you need to check out the daily matchup reports as well as the exclusive Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups tool only at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And with a look at keeping owners playing hard, here's Baseball HQ founder Ron Chandler. One of the biggest challenges in season-long fantasy leagues is keeping all owners engaged for six months. By this point in the season, only about 20% of teams have a reasonable shot at a title. That means 8 out of every 10 teams is just playing out the string. In Major League Baseball, multi-millionaires are paid to play, even if their team is 25 games out of first place. In fantasy, there is no such built-in incentive. However, there are artificial incentives that can be employed. In Tout Wars, for instance, we use two incentives to make sure owners stay engaged all year. In the first, we set a minimum points level that each team must achieve. In the 12-team AL and NL leagues, that level is 60 points. For each point that a team falls short of that, they lose $1 off their free agent acquisition budget for the following year. So, if you finish this year with 57 points, you'll go into 2015 with only $97 of the normal $100 fab. That's one incentive to keep clawing for every point. 
The other is that the final 2014 standings constitute the seeding for the reserve round in 2015. Keep on clawing. While artificial incentives can work, I'd like to think that this time of the season is ripe for early planning. At USA Today this week, I wrote that next year's first few draft rounds could be more muddled than we've seen in years. That's because most of this March's top picks have become riskier plays. In fact, 17 of the top 20 have either spent time on the disabled list or underperformed as compared to expectation this year. That potentially opens the door for more surprises. This year's breakouts of Jose Abreu and Masahiro Tanaka could become more commonplace in 2015. Why? Because we can't trust that Paul Goldschmidt and Andrew McCutcheon are going to be perfectly healthy. and We can't guarantee that Miguel Cabrera and Robinson Cano are going to rediscover their lost power skills. Heck, even Mike Trout is only batting around 255 since July 1st. And what better time of year to start scouting potential rookie surprises than in September? This coming month looks like it could offer the mother load of early previews. Javier Baez and Reimer Luriano were promoted earlier this month. Jorge Soler just got the call this week. Players like Francisco Lindor, Mikhail Franco, and even Ruzny Castillo could see some significant playing time in September. In keeper leagues, it's possible that many of these players are already in farm systems. Those in redraft leagues might grab a few out of the free agent pool to help with a late push. But that's just treating these potential impact players as ancillary commodities, when in fact they could anchor your fantasy teams in 2015. Now, if you were just playing for the month of September, you could consider these rising stars as if they were potential foundation players for your team. What would a roster look like whose core was Lindor at shortstop, Soler in the outfield, and maybe John Gray on the mound. You could consider September as a testing ground for some of your planning for 2015. For players like Byron Buxton, Addison Russell, and Mark Appel, you may need to wait until the Arizona Fall League to assess their potential. But there's a whole host of top prospects who you can play fantasy ball with right now. That's one of the neat things you can do in this year's final set of monthly leagues in September. Stock your roster with an eye to the future and see where it might take you. For those currently out of the hunt, it's a great exercise to give you a leg up on 2015. To take a last shot at a one-month league in September, head over to ChandlerPark.com. Deadline is Monday and Labor Day. To uh, check out some of these prospects out in the Arizona Fall League with First Pitch Arizona, click on that link on the homepage at BaseballHQ.com and to find out how you can sign up for that program. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler, BaseballHQ.com. Ron Chandler is Baseball HQ's founder and a member of the Masternotes rotation at the site and here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 29th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 57 and the last podcast of the 2014 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our special guests on this edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Million Dollar winner Dave Potts was a great guest with a great story and a terrific song as well. 
And baseball writer Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated was his usual thoughtful and insightful self. I also want to thank all our guest experts this year for their insight, wit, knowledge, and music recommendations. Larry Schechter, Matt Beagle, the video blogger for Stratomatic, Rick Wilton, Dr. HQ, was in a couple of times to talk about another devastating year on the DL. Steve Gardner, the senior fantasy editor at USA Today and usatoday.com. Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Gene McCaffrey, one of our favorite guests from the Wise Guy Baseball Annual. Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoman.com and the Tout Wars Commissioner. Lore Michaels from MastersBall.com and other sites. Peter and Lore and Gene were also really terrific with their music recommendations. We had Glenn Colton from SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Channel and a very successful player in his own right talking about not only fantasy baseball but the legal issues surrounding fantasy sports in general. We had Corey Schwartz, the Vice President of Statistics for Major League Baseball Advanced Media. Jeff Erickson from Rotowire. And again from today's edition, Million Dollar Winner Dave Potts and Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't also thank our regular crew here on Baseball HQ Radio, a great group of experts from BaseballHQ.com, which I like to say is the best fantasy baseball website in the business, and I'll argue about it with anybody. It's no exaggeration to say that without these guys and the incredible amount of hard work they put in, we would not have a show at all. So thank you to Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, our Market Watch beat reporters for the National League and the American League. A special thank you to our Talk with Todd correspondent, Todd Zola. It's just amazing to talk with Todd Zola every week. He knows so much. He thinks about this stuff all the time. It's just a terrific guest, and it's a pleasure to talk with him. Our segment commentators all year, Ryan Bloomfield with the Metric Minute, Greg Fishwick with the Pitcher Matchups Report, and Rob Gordon with the Minor League Minute, as well as our Master Notes commentators, Ron Chandler and Ray Murphy. And Rob, Ron, and Ray were all also featured guests. I'm Patrick Davitt. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. Be the first to know when there's a new edition of Baseball HQ Radio. But more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next season with another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks again for listening and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>